We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51, through to chapter 10, verse 4. This is found on page 734 of these Black Bibles. It's on the left column of page 734 under the heading Samaritan Opposition. This is the Word of God. As the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers from his harvest field, into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. I always like to be an individual in life for some reason and I don't think I'm alone, ironically. I just don't like the idea of following the crowd and doing what everyone else does. When I was younger, I resisted seeing Titanic uh, for months and months because it was so mainstream. I know, I was, I was a rebel, you know, <laughs> radical. But the thing is, over the years that I've come to realise is that I'm, I'm just like everyone else, really. And even when I think I'm being different, it still turns out that I'm just like everyone else. Kathy and I liked the name Matilda even before we had any kids and we thought we were different but then when we had Matilda and named her, it turns out in that year that she was in the, the top 20 popular names, about 15 and at her preschool there was even another Matilda George. <laughs> so even choosing a name like Josiah, that's unique, right? People still say to me, did you guys make that up? Or, oh, is that a combination of two different names? It might not seem like a common name but Old, strange, biblical names, they're right back in fashion. In my kids' school, there's Moseses and Solomons and Ezekiels all over the place. It's really hard to be truly cutting edge. It's near impossible to, to step outside the, the blind spots of your culture and challenge the status quo. 
And even when you finally manage to do it, you get out, step outside the box, you look around and everybody's jumping out of the box with you. Even if you can think or do something different, you look back into history, it's been thought or done in the past. We think we're being intelligent or progressive, bespoke, cutting edge. But the sad thing is future generations are going to look back at us and laugh at us as mindless sheep, following each other, thinking, doing, being the same as the masses around us. But there is a way to step outside the usual pattern and to think differently. But I've got to warn you, it's not very comfortable doing it. In fact, it's incredibly confronting. You see, Jesus actually manages to do what we fail to do. He really is cutting edge. He confronts and overturns the norms in his culture, the culture of his day. But one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he keeps confronting all cultures in all times, in unbelievable ways. It's so ironic the way that Jesus and Christianity is dismissed today as too mainstream. Because if you look at the teaching of Jesus, it's anything but mainstream. Jesus confronts just about everything that we hold sacred. That's why we've called this series Avant-Garde Christ. As Bob said, well, literally, avant-garde means vanguard or advance guard. It's like people who are the forerunners. If someone's described as avant-garde, it's usually because they're experimental or they're radical, unorthodox, that they're pushing the boundaries of, of what's accepted in society and culture. And it's, it's usually used to describe certain types of art and certain types of fashion designers and that sort of thing. You know, this sort of stuff, it's a bit confronting, mostly because it looks so uncomfortable to wear. But it's got nothing on Jesus. Jesus is uniquely avant-garde because he's not different for the sake of being different. Jesus is the forerunner of another culture. He's ahead of his time because he brings the future kingdom of God near. And his message to us is that we can join that future kingdom now and begin to take on its culture even now within our own culture. This kingdom of God will one day overturn every other kingdom. And so it's no wonder that we find him confronting even today. So for the next couple of months, we're going to be following Jesus on his final journey, as Bob said. And because this is his final journey, Jesus instructs his disciples with a new intensity. As his death closes in, he teaches them what it means to follow him and he teaches them what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God that's coming. Look at Luke 9:51 where we saw this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is his final phase of ministry. And the first lesson that the disciples back then needed to learn and any follower of Jesus needs to learn is this. It costs a lot to follow Jesus. Look at how this lesson unfolds with me on the journey. Verse 52. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. A group that big would need some um, advance warning for the town so that they weren't overwhelmed when they arrived. 
But in verse 53, the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews were enemies and so Jesus' determination to head to Jerusalem, the capital of, of, of Jewish-held territory, was unacceptable to the Samaritans, so they reject him. Look what happens in verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Now, Jesus didn't call these two brothers sons of thunder for no reason. They've got some issues. But keep in mind that the disciples, they've just come to accept that Jesus is the Christ. And they haven't yet figured out what this means. They think they have. So they're not really listening when Jesus tells them that it means he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. They just can't take that in. James and John have just seen Jesus on the mountaintop talking with Moses and Elijah, transformed in all his glory, shining like the sun. They're convinced now that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Christ, and they think that Jesus will take his place in Jerusalem as the king, not just of Israel, but of the world. Now, James and John, they might need anger management classes, but they're not complete idiots. They haven't just pulled this idea out of nowhere that people who reject the Christ will face judgment. The Old Testament looked forward to a political king who would rule the world, destroying the enemies of God's people, who would bring eternal peace and prosperity and joy through military triumph. So when Jesus heads towards Jerusalem, you can just imagine what they're thinking. This is it. These are the glory days. No wonder they've just been arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. Maybe they expected when Jesus got there that he'd kind of stir the crowd up, they'd storm the Roman garrison and then start their campaign for worldwide domination. Or more likely, given what they just said to Jesus, they probably thought he'd do it by supernatural means, that he'd call down fire from heaven and consume God's enemies. Either way, in their minds, the road to Jerusalem is the march to human fame and glory and triumph. Jesus has a very different view of what's going to happen in Jerusalem and a very different view of what it means to follow him. What it means to follow him in this life. And so we see in verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. After this episode... Jesus confronts James and John's idea that in this life, following him is going to be triumph and glory and comfort. Following Jesus is difficult and it's costly. Look at what it can cost in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You'd think this kind of dedication is exactly what Jesus would, would welcome in a follower, wouldn't you? But Jesus is never into being popular. He's into the truth. Would he follow Jesus wherever he goes? To Jerusalem, to agony, to humiliation, to death? Jesus detects an even more immediate barrier for this guy in verse 58. Jesus says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
He doesn't have a house, doesn't have a home, he's on the road. It's not going to be comfortable to follow him. This was literally true for people who were going to follow Jesus back then, but it's still true for us in another sense. Jesus challenges something here that many of us treat as sacred, our comfort. Now, he's not against comfort per se, but he's teaching disciples that we cannot prioritise comfort over him. If we're a follower of Jesus, our comfort is not sacred, it's expendable. Now, personally, I I find this confronting because I I quite like my comfort. But my preferences for how I spend my life, my lifestyle, my leisure, my enjoyment, these are not to be my guide on the path through life. Jesus is. And living for His kingdom. I see the temptation to be guided by comfort instead of Jesus in myself and and in others in so many ways. You know, like when we choose where we live or our career, when we choose what job uh, we're going to do, how we spend our time. How much does Jesus feature and how much does comfort feature? See, what's comfortable, what's convenient, what's enjoyable... We often take for granted as king in our lives. Jesus shakes us up. But back to the journey, because next, Jesus takes the initiative. Look at verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That sounds fair enough, doesn't it? I mean, this this is one thing that is sacred, surely, that's untouchable. Even Jesus has got to realize that. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is shocking, isn't it? I mean, we find it so incredibly shocking because it sounds to us so insensitive. But it's got nothing on us compared to how shocking it would have been to them back then. The obligation to bury the dead, they felt from every side, from Scripture from personal piety, from culture, from family. This is perhaps Jesus' greatest avant-garde moment. Now, admittedly, when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's not saying that he should leave him unburied. He's saying to leave those who haven't responded to his call, who've refused him, leave them to bury him. But still, this is a huge shake-up and it confronts us even today. I mean, think about what it says about what it means to follow Jesus and what it says about God's kingdom. We're not in the same position as this man in that following Jesus for him meant that there was no time to hesitate. No matter how great or noble the cause was, this was Jesus' final phase of ministry. For him, it was now or never. But Jesus is not just teaching this guy, he's teaching his disciples who are listening in and through them, He's teaching us. And the lesson is that no matter how great or noble a cause may be or our obligation to it, there is nothing more critical than following Jesus, nothing more important than God's kingdom. What would be too sacred for you to let go of? A relationship, 
friendships, career, lifestyle, sexuality, family. The confronting thing is that in Jesus' mind, nothing is sacrosanct. Nothing is untouchable. And we see this again on the journey in the next person that he meets. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. That's harmless. Surely he can catch up on the road in a couple of days. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You know that idea that's out there that Jesus is just a good teacher? It just doesn't stack up when you look at his teaching. Jesus doesn't apologise for or, or attempt to justify the high cost of discipleship. He's saying that following him is of greater importance than personal comfort, than honouring the dead, than saying goodbye to family. If he's just a teacher, that's a problem, isn't it? But it's not a problem if Jesus is who he says he is. There's not a problem if, in what Jesus is asking for here. There's a problem in our view of him. See, I know scenarios where people have missed out on parents' funeral uh, because of family tension or sickness or because they've just arrived on a trip of a lifetime overseas. I know of scenarios where people have had to leave urgently and haven't had a chance to say goodbye to people, family face-to-face, sometimes because their life's been in danger. It's funny how we can easily, fairly easily understand those situations but think Jesus is asking too much. Why is that? If we see who Jesus is, we'll see that there's nothing more important than following him, nothing more important than serving in God's kingdom. It costs a lot to follow Jesus. But this brings us to our second point. It's worth it. It's worth the cost to follow Jesus. Let's see how this unfolds back on the journey. Jesus sends out 72 of his followers this time, these people that he's been recruiting. And he sends them to tell people that God's kingdom has come near. And then Jesus himself would would turn up to their village. And he gives these people his own authority. So first to offer peace, then to heal the sick, then to announce that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' heart is for people to immigrate into God's kingdom. But if they refuse, if they'd prefer to remain in kingdoms defiant or disinterested in God, then he says judgment is inevitable. Look at what he says to his followers in verse 10. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, this isn't Jesus giving the disciples permission to chuck a tantrum if they're rejected. In verse 16, he says, Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the disciples giving them a warning as a final act of compassion. Because to reject Jesus' message, however it comes to you, is to reject the Father himself, Jesus says. If we 
reject God's kingdom, then we're choosing to remain under God's judgment. And he takes that personally. And so he should. It's worth pausing and letting Jesus confront us here and asking ourselves, which kingdom do we belong to? God's or a kingdom that's opposed to him? You see, Jesus may have rebuked James and John for wanting to destroy that town in Samaria, but he's saying there will come a time when rejection of him will result in judgment. That time wasn't then, it's not now, but it's coming. But the very reason that Jesus resolutely sets out towards Jerusalem is to lay down his life, to die, to make it possible for that judgment to be avoided, to be eradicated. See, it's worth the cost to follow Jesus. It's worth the cost because he pays the cost to save us from a future judgment. But it's also worth the cost to follow Jesus because we get to share in his work. See, we don't get to share in the same way as the disciples did necessarily, but we get sent out by Jesus with the same authority to announce God's kingdom. Following Jesus gives our life meaning and purpose. And Jesus says here that there's an even greater reason why it's worth it, beyond escaping judgment, beyond having purpose as we're sharing God's work. Look at how this unfolds on the journey in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You can imagine the, the euphoria that they would have felt. Imagine healing a sick person, or casting out a demon, announcing God's kingdom and seeing people respond to it, warning people against rejecting it. They, they must have felt amazing, they must have felt so important. But look at what Jesus says they should rejoice in, in verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Again, Jesus focuses his followers not on the immediate benefits that they experience now. Following him now is not about fame and glory and comfort in this life. That's not why we're motivated to serve in God's kingdom. The real joy, the real benefits are future. Our names are written in heaven. We belong to God's kingdom. We're citizens. That's our treasure. Citizens of a kingdom that will last forever, free from pain and suffering and death. Look at what Jesus himself rejoices in, in verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. It's worth the cost to follow Jesus because God has revealed to us just how great this kingdom is. We belong to something phenomenal, something beautiful. We ourselves are forerunners of God's own kingdom. But while we're greatly privileged, Jesus teaches his followers that it's not because of anything wise or powerful or wonderful in us. And this brings us to our final point. It's only through Jesus that the Father opens our eyes to count the cost and to see that Jesus is worth it. 
In verse 22, Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is, except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The reality is that following Jesus will never look worth it unless God, the Father, opens our eyes to see it. And we will never know the Father, Jesus says, unless he reveals him to us. He says we're just little children. We're completely dependent on God to open our eyes. And he does it as Jesus confronts us. Jesus is like the key to knowing the Father. How you respond to the message about Jesus is the same as how you respond to Jesus, which is the same as how you respond to the Father. Think about what that means. Even now, right now, as we hear Jesus' words read to us, in this passage, God is asking us, have you counted the cost? Are you going to follow Jesus? Just before Jesus started towards Jerusalem, he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? It's it's no use putting other things above Jesus. Even if the world was ours, it's, it's no use putting it above Jesus. He's saying to us, let go of what you can't hold on to. He's saying, let me hold what you can't hold on to. In the end, Jesus asks a lot. We're going to see this over the weeks. But he gives far, far, far more than he asks. He resolutely heads to Jerusalem to die for us. It costs to follow Jesus, but it's worth it. Just before I pray, I thought it'd be good for us to take a moment just to count the cost personally. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what would be the personal cost for you to follow Jesus? Even just think about that theoretically. If you do follow Jesus, what is the personal cost for you? What is the cost? Take a moment to reflect and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, whatever cost we can conceive of is nothing compared to the cost that Christ paid for us at that cross. We stand in awe of you, Father. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, mere children, to see the enormous value of Jesus, of what he's done of what it wins for us. Father, as we follow you, help us to hold nothing as sacred above Jesus. And where we are, Lord, help us to realise that we can't hold on to these things and help us just to hand them over to him. Lord, 
we pray that you would help us to share with other people the enormous value in following Jesus, despite the cost. But Lord, we recognise that without your work of opening people's eyes, it's in vain. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help people to see just how great Jesus is and just what he has done. Help us as we continue this series over the next couple of months to be confronted by Jesus and to be disciples who bring our entire lives into orbit around him. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.